Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, founder and president of Gen Next Wealth, a fee-only financial planning and investment firm. Today, we're continuing in our month of March, which is going to be dedicated to finance. And today, we are joined by Dr. Ajamu Loving. So Dr. Loving has an incredible story. I'm going to let him share that with you. But what we want to do today is we still want to take time to continue to hear feedback from our listeners. I've been getting tons of messages from you guys. People have been sending me DMs. People have been reaching out to me on Twitter. People have been reaching out to me on all social media platforms. And I have to make an announcement before we even get into this. Just this week, we're blessed with a brand new baby girl. So today, Isela Bernice is my wife and I's daughter. She is actually three days old. So I want to thank everybody for the thoughts and prayers. Some of the listeners knew my wife was pregnant. Some of them didn't. But I just want to put that out there, let you guys know that she is healthy and well beautiful baby girl. Maybe we'll even put a picture of her in the show notes so you guys know what's going on. But the reason why we're here today also is to talk to Dr. Loving about financial planning for families of color. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Loving. Thank you for having me. So if you wouldn't mind, you know, I'm excited to have you on. First of all, I've heard your story. I've heard you on other podcasts. Other people that I've talked to have mentioned you. They whisper about you in corners like the legend that you are. Uh Yeah, they've been talking about you, but nothing but great things. So if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Levin, why don't you give the listeners a little background about yourself? All right. So my name is Ajamu Levin. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, originally, and now I live in Dallas, Texas. When you say some information about me, I guess you mean the pertinent information. (laughs) I'm I'm the first Black PhD in personal financial planning from a CFP board registered program. I want to say 2002, the CFP board gave Texas Tech a grant to start the first board registered financial planning program. And in 2004, they started accepting students, I believe 2003 or 2004. 2007, I believe, was the first PhD in financial planning graduate. And I finished and well, I guess I defended my dissertation in 2009. And then what happened after that was I graduated in 2010. So there was some dissertation hours and things that I had to take to finish up. So even though I wasn't the first Black PhD student in financial planning, actually, there were a couple who were ahead of me. There was one, uh, Lisa, I think Black Enterprise Magazine, a cover story on her, or not a cover story, but a story on her and the importance of financial planning in the minority community. And so she was one of the people who I leaned on and learned a lot from while I was going through the program. I just happened to finish first before anybody else did. And then, you know, some people went on to do other things. It's weird, man. A PhD program keeps you oddly focused. In some ways, like you are laser-like focused on the topics that you're looking at studying. But then also what happens is you start to recognize the level of commitment that it's taking and the direction that it's taken. And if that's not the specific direction that you want to go, then what happens is a lot of people end up changing their mind and saying, I'm not sure that I want to go 
completely down this rabbit hole this way. And then they end up switching off to other things. And so, but I had a pretty good idea. This was 100% where I needed to be. This was my field. This is, you know, my father's a financial planner as well with Waddell and Reed and has been since the mid eighties. And so I have always had interest in financial planning. And I'm one of those people who's a little bit more curious, I think, than the average individual. And so I was able to leverage that to help me out and really find out what I was interested in. When I was at Morehouse College, that was where my undergrad was, a professor named John Handy. And I think every good professor has the responsibility of asking their better students like a question that they'll wrestle with. And so he gave me a book called Black Wealth, White Wealth by Melvin Oliver and Thomas Shapiro. And he said, I want you to look at this through an economic lens and then, you know, talk about how we solve this difference between black wealth and white wealth, which at the time was about, you know, still in multiple of 10 in terms of how much wealth the average white family had in comparison to the average black family. And we're still at about that same place. But as I started to examine what it is that we could do, in my mind, at least, one of the major things that, that popped out at me as something we could do is focus on generational wealth on an individual family basis to whatever degree we could. And my dad was already sort of doing that. And so that crystallized over time for me as a thing that I could do, because I think I dealt with some of the same things that everybody deals with when they're going through college, especially at a place like Morehouse College, where, you know, you have some very well-to-do Black folks who are making money and doing all right. And then you have people like me who were there on scholarship and financially struggling. And so you see people in land cruisers. You want a land cruiser. I wanted the bubble legs, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> when I was going through school and it was my deal was, all right, I recognize these problems in the Black community. I think I've heard this once or twice. Maybe Steve Harvey said, the best thing that you could do for poor people is not be one of them, right? Try to get rich, get money. And I think in my process of thinking, oh, okay, well, I'm trying to get money. My first reflex was to move into banking and figure out, okay, how can I make the highest salary for me? Who cares what I'm doing, right? This is about me trying to get ahead. And what I found was I didn't have the passion necessary to push me and propel me to where I would have needed to go to actually even get wealthy doing the corporate side of banking the way that it was structured and the way I went into it. I just didn't enjoy it. While I was in school, I did a summer program at American Economics Association in Austin at University of Texas at Austin because I was thinking about doing a PhD in economics at that time. And I was an eco major, math minor, and I was always pretty good at math. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll go ahead and I'll check this out. And two weeks into the program, they had some people come in and tell us about salaries. And I was like, wait, what? This is how much you make after a PhD? Yeah. Oh, no. And so it immediately turned me off of that. I was just chasing and thinking about the money and the money only. And the reason that I tell this long, drawn-out story is because I think that just microcosm short story right there is something that we as Black folks go through in general. When we're thinking about our financial situation, it's ever-present that we have less. And sometimes it can blind you in terms of thinking about what it is that you really want, what really matters to you how you're going to focus on actually getting your family ahead, things like intergenerational wealth, 
on the long term instead of just thinking about the three inches in front of your face and sometimes the bling that you want, but sometimes the financial security and like the feeling of I have enough that you want. All of that is out there. And so the nice thing about professionals such as yourself, professionals like my dad and other black professionals out there in financial planning is we are tethered to to use the this is us term. We are tethered to that experience. We feel that. And so it gives us an opportunity to know our clients, especially our black clients, maybe in a way that white or other non-black financial planner might not experience the world. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense to you. I think it makes total sense and complete sense. And I can tell you a little bit about, you know, just talking about my own career and how I get in there. And I had no idea that your dad was a financial planner. That's awesome. But when I was looking at my career, like as I began to, you know, the name of my firm is Gen Next Wealth, helping minority families, you know, build, retain generational wealth. And my journey was like what was happening was I was getting a lot of minority clients leaving white advisors to come talk to me. And I think it was largely in part because I could relate to them. Like I could relate to them, you know, coming from nothing. I could relate to them, you know, maybe not having a budget under control, maybe, you know, wanting to chase some of the bling, maybe wanting to have shiny things and not judging them for it because I could look at them and have some empathy. I could look at them and have some, you know, that's the same thing I did. And then talking to them, I think the biggest thing that I was able to do is share my stories from my family and the mistakes that we made and that put us in certain situations, whether it had to do with long-term care, whether it had to do with the not having an estate plan for our family, whether it had to do with, you know, bad credit, whatever it was, I could take all my life experiences, package those up, and give them to clients. And this was the ability I had to relate to them because it was all stuff that they were talking about. And these are not people that weren't making money. These are people that were, you know, some of these people are making six figures. Some of these people had large retirement accounts. Some of these people had a lot of different things, but they were intimidated by advisors that weren't advisors of color. And there's not a lot of advisors of color out there. So it was just one of those things that I think naturally happened. And then it led me to start my own firm and and continue to help those families and stuff. But what I would say is, while you were going through the PhD program, right? Because you said a lot of people change and I've thought about this and I just want to hear a little bit about this, but how did you continue to stay focused? It sounds like you were going through this trail and you were looking at it because I also had a career in banking. I don't know if I didn't share that with you. No, I didn't know that. And my wife's a bank manager too. So I was uh, started as a teller, went up to new accounts. I was a bank manager for like five years and you know, getting to deal with a lot of different issues financially with families in banking, because you get to see all their money in the bank, or most of it, at least, of what they spend their money on. And so hearing your story saying, yeah, you know, I just really didn't have the passion for that. It's kind of funny that you're saying things that led me into where I'm at. I just didn't have the passion for that portion of the financial <laughs> you know, career. So can you tell me how you were able to push through where you were at to get to where you went? You know, recognizing that you didn't have the passion for that part of it, I think is something that has helped me out because when I graduated Morehouse, I went into this program called the Finance Associates Program. It's a two-year program where you rotate it through all the different parts of corporate finance in the bank, right? And after that, I did trust services for about six months before I decided, man, it's time for me to get into something people facing and actually start working towards helping families. And that's when I did bank branch financial planning, right? So I was the financial planner in a bank branch at LaSalle Bank. Now it's a Bank of America company. And so that's when I started to discover how interested I was in the investment environment, insurance environment, 
and estate planning and taxation and how all of these things affected the individual household. And I really had an interest in a, you know, how do I help each family type of way? But then I was thinking, man, how come as an econ major, there wasn't more of this in my educational experience, you know, a great school like Morehouse. And what I found was, oh, wow, as a field in terms of an academic discipline, it was relatively new. So I was able to take my recently developed passion for working with individuals and households and family financial planning and couple that with some of the skills and, you know, the respect that I have for academia in general when recognize, man, there's a new opportunity to do something that hasn't been done before in terms of looking at financial planning as an academic discipline and being one of the pioneers to help develop it as an academic discipline. So I was excited about that. And I was excited because I knew that there were opportunities in the end to really impact folks. I think that's, you know, the cool thing about having a dad that was in financial planning as early as he was from the 80s through the 2000s is by 2005, he was able to tell me stories about folks. <laughs> there was, the, man, it sister started with $25 a month. And he'll talk to you like that. This sister didn't have, you know, he, and not with names and anything, but he would tell me stories about this brother, you know, you didn't have no money to rub together. To, but we got started. We started putting some money in the money market, made sure his insurances were straight, put him in a position where he could start contributing to these stock funds. Now he's got hundreds of thousands of dollars outside of IRA rollovers. And then somebody moves and switch jobs or something like that. And then they, oh, wow, they bring all this money over to Lovin'. And people think, oh, well, you know, he knows how to get at the money. But the difference was he was actually cultivating and growing clients. He was making clients. And so I became interested in that because that has to happen in the Black community. It's not so much waiting on the money to come. We know that there is not as much money out there. So we have to be experts at taking individuals who have potential and turning them into investors. And I think everybody has potential if they'll listen and be, be steadfast and be consistent with their behavior. Everybody has potential to do well and create intergenerational wealth for, for their families. We just have to decide to do it and commit to it. And so those types of things and knowing those things are the things that when times got hard during the PhD program, which they will, when times get hard when you're trying to write a dissertation and you don't feel like doing it, you recognize that, okay, you know, there's a tremendous opportunity in front of me, but it's not just about me. And that is, at least for me, the way to get me to do stuff. Because I'm a naturally lazy person. I'll tell anybody that. Naturally, I'm a lazy individual. But when I know that other people are dependent on me, then I get up off my, I get up and I get it going because I don't want anybody to look at me and think, oh man, you know, Dr. King, all these other folks from Morehouse who made an impact to try to make it better for Black folks. And then you have a Damu Lovin who comes here, has every opportunity in the world to try to make a difference and just chooses to not. And so there's that, I will admit, there's that pressure that's out there that says, okay, you know, you need to focus, you need to do what other people might not be willing to do because you recognize that there is fruit out there that can really help somebody else and start to impact Black folks' lives in this country. You know, we can look at the situations that we're in as Black people and say, man, you know, we have not moved as far as I would like to have seen us move over our time here. But it's very difficult to look at it and say we haven't moved a lot in comparison to where we were. 
Right. And I think we have moved and I won't, I'm just interjecting, yeah. not to interrupt, yeah. but interject. I think we have in not only, and I say this because I think that the numbers sometimes like people don't realize how many people are out there fighting a good fight. Right. There's a handful of people. I'd say there's a lot of us out there, not to name names. I won't do that because I'll forget someone and then they'll tell me something later. So I won't <laughs> name a whole bunch of names. But there's a lot of people out there fighting the good fight for people of color, making sure that they are getting what they need. Some of the people have been on the podcast, so I will name those people because they've been on the show. But I know Tyrone Ross is out there fighting the good fight. Sandra Davis is fighting the good fight. And my good friend, my guy out in uh, L.A., Luis Barajas at Lab is fighting the good fight. There's a lot of people out there fighting a good fight. And if I didn't mention you, it doesn't mean that you're not fighting. So I think there's been a lot of stuff going on and we're doing that. And I love to hear the stories that your father is telling, because I've heard the same stories from people that basically from white people where they had started with a little bit of money and they kept putting money in, whether it was $25 a month. I remember, you know, hearing that and watching them grow that. You know, I wanted to touch on your philosophy a little bit. Your philosophy said people are more important than things. Talk to the listeners a little bit about that. Yeah. And that right there, I think, is when I was talking about, well, what kept me engaged through the difficult PhD process is the recognition that, okay, yeah, it's not about the salary that I'm not going to have. And it's not about getting lost in how difficult this particular class is that's in front of me. It's about the people that I'll be able to help, not just as a researcher, but also as a professor that can help to increase the number of Black financial planners out there. That's, you know, another part of my passion. So if we have more of us in our community talking about real financial planning and helping people put together uh, complete financial lives, then what we'll have is tremendous growth, potentially for growth in terms of wealth from generation to generation. With insurance uh, premiums the way that they are, you really only have to have one broke generation. Yeah. You can put yourself in a position, I don't care how little money you make on a monthly basis, you know, if you got a person who, you know, everybody's going to die, okay? And so to the extent that we all have some form of decent life insurance on us out there, then we can put ourselves in a position where as folks transition, then, you know, there's wealth to be passed instead of hats to be passed for, for contributions, okay? And so it's the understanding that, what is going to motivate you typically more than anything, any idea is people. People are more important than things. And so when you need to motivate a person to invest, to buy something that you really can't hold, you know, yeah. stock is not a tangible, physical thing. I mean, you can have a certificate or whatever, but the idea of ownership, the idea of insurance, the conceptualizing the full idea of having a financial plan that's going to lead to intergenerational wealth for yourself and your family, that is a tough thing to really crystallize. Mm -hmm. But what's always and ever present around you is the people who you love, who mean something to you, right? The kids who you want to have build a future for. As soon as that little face came into the world a couple of days ago, it imprints your very soul, man. It's like, it's like that new person. And you think, OK, well, I already have kids and I don't understand this infinite capacity for love. But it's like, boom, immediately mm -hmm. you smack dab in the middle of your spirit that there's another person that you love and you can't even quantify how much it is that you love them and what you do for them. But you move the entire world and you can multiply that by as many kids as you have. Doesn't even matter, man. That is our capacity for love 
And that is why I talk about people over things because it's the infinite, right? That love, that realness that you have that will allow you to really care for another person and and want to do good for them even after you're no longer around to witness the good that it does in their lives. That right there is powerful. And I think anytime that you can attach yourself to what it is that you actually want to happen for the people in your life who you love and care about, then you'll have some plans that folks will be not just willing to stick to, but like really, you know, committed to and feel like they're a part of its ownership of it. Right. Mm -hmm. I want people to feel that way when I'm talking to them as uh, potential clients. But then when I'm talking to young black and Hispanic kids about finance and maybe being financial professionals, I want them to walk away with that same sort of feeling of ownership of, man, these tools, these techniques, all of these things that we're talking about are going to be powerful tools that I'm going to be able to use to positive, transformative force and catch this, the lives of the people that I love and love me. And we are going to make this world a better place. And I feel like that is the type of attitude that needs to be out there. I wish I saw more of it in the political environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but I know it's hard to do because people get caught up in ideology and all the rest of that. But if we can move beyond the ideology to think about, you know, the personal impact a little bit more, I think that everybody would be a bit better off. Absolutely. No doubt about it. You're bringing up some great points. And so when it comes to financial planning for people of color, why is it so important to meet those families where they are? Here's the tough thing. Okay, so when we talk about the financial history and the financial traumas of black folks specifically, we have been actively not just abandoned, but also often persecuted by financial institutions. Right. Put us in a position where they were predatory in relation to us in terms of race. They charge. Heck, sometimes they wouldn't even give us loans because there is a long history of black companies trying to start in insurance and finance and all the rest of that. And, you know, basically, in many cases, running them out of business. In fact, lynching itself was a tool of financial terror as well, right? You see a Black family that somehow managed to acquire a large uh, amount of acreage, right? And then there's a white farmer that decides that they would like to take the land and the family's not willing to sell. And the next thing you know, you hear about a lynching and there are quite a few of them that had that exact sort of experience. And the thing about terror, and I talk to people about this all the time with respect to police shootings of unarmed Black people, is that terror does not have to be something that happens in a statistically significant way. Mm-hmm. All that has to happen is it has to happen in a significantly horrific way. So it's not about how often or the likelihood that it's going to happen to you, but how horrific it is, mm-hmm. right? And what happens is, When you introduce trauma around any sort of situation, it makes it more difficult for the person to act in a logical way that's actually going to get them to move ahead. And it's a tough thing to understand from the outside. But the nice thing about Black financial planners and Black folks that have been in it is we feel it. We know it. We know that trepidation. We know when people talk about being scared of the market. We know when people talk about, well, what if somebody in the family needs something? What if you know, what happens when somebody passes away? You know, you're going to take those kids in if something happens to the person whom you always babysitting the kids anyway. And so all of these situations that other people look at and say, oh, well, you know, if you just took care of yourself or if you just focused on what was important, 
then black folks would be fine. But in terms of the experiences that we have and how you're going to actually realistically deal with them, that's too dismissive, man. You have to be able to get down in it with the folks, right? And then talk to them about how $25, $50 a month is, is, is going to be the start to us moving to where you need to be and repairing credit and all of these things that other folks in financial planning don't necessarily want to get into. They don't want to talk about these behavior, the behavioral side of it. They don't want to talk about the feelings. They don't want to talk about the trauma. There are a lot of people who will be uncomfortable listening to the way I've talked about this right now. But I feel like it's important to recognize it so that you can effectively get down into it with folks to really help them, you know, get to where they're trying to go. And I think that goes back to meeting people where they are. I know I had Luis Barajas on and he's talking about, you know, you got Wall Street, you got Main Street, and then he called it My Street. He said, on My Street, people are living on Social Security. On My Street, people don't have 401ks. On My Street, you know, they might not even have insurance because this is how different it is on My Street. And I think when you look at it and we're talking about black families and and I just like I extend that to most families of color. You know, my wife happens to be Mexican. And so I've seen her family have a lot of the same fears, not necessarily of the lynchings and things like that, that we have experienced as black people, but still some of the same fears. And nonetheless, fears about the financial system. How does it work? You know, how do we go about getting a loan that's not predatory? How do we go about, you know, what is good credit? What is bad credit? How do we save money? And I think the financial planning industry has made so much money on selling products to people and not providing solutions for people that they're leery. You know, I see some of these life insurance policies that people have, which we're, we're going to do an episode dedicated to life insurance. We, you know, I've been a life insurance person for longer than anything else. But some of these predatory sales that take place with people within the communities of people of color, which are like, It's sad to say the least. And this is because people are taking advantage of families of color and really not doing planning. They're saying everything can fix this product I have, not this solution, but this product I have is going to take care of all of your problems. It's going to be this one-stop thing. You don't have to worry about anything. People have seen me before. Do you want to get my blood boiling? You want to see me get mad? Talk about some of these. I'm not going to name companies, but just talk about some of these. I'm not asking you to talk about it. I'm just saying like, If people start talking about these, you know, I have this life insurance policy and the life insurance policy is going to be my retirement plan. It's going to be my kids' college savings. It's going to be my emergency fund if I have something else. And I was like, no, that's in your life insurance plan. And I have to be very tactful in how I tell them that's probably not the best place for you to be saving all of your money. That's probably not the best place for you to be pulling money out of. That's probably not the best use of your investment dollars. And just being able to talk through those people, but back to what the question was about meeting people where they are and you have to be able to earn the right to tell because people don't care how much, you know, is the oldest cliche ever. They don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And so when I look at that, I think that the career of financial planning, real financial planning, as my good friend Carl Richards calls it, he said real financial planning because there's a difference, right? Mm hmm. And I've worked for some of those multi-level marketing companies before. I worked for one of them in particular. I won't name it, but I did work there. And so I see what it looks like on the other side where the people are important. The numbers are important. Mm -hmm. It's all about how many people you can sit in front of, how big the list is you can give me, how many people I can go on appointments with, how many people I can get to buy this life insurance policy. Life insurance is so important to be using it in that way makes me sick to my stomach. It gets me fired up. Well, it is good. I mean, it's a tool, right? And these tools are a very important part of the process overall, right? 
Mm-hmm. And I think people can go the wrong way with investment tools too. I think, you know, whether it's insurance tools, investment tools, people talking about tax exclusively, this is why the financial planning process means so much to me. And I'm confident that we can get competent financial planning as an expected process integrated into the Black community. Because when we start to see people be successful at anything, back, I always use this example of record labels in the 90s, right? As <laughs> soon as people started, man, when they saw Jay-Z making that Rockefeller money and Diddy making that money off a of bad boy, everybody was like, well, maybe I need a record label, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that if people see Black folks see the processes by which people become wealthy and we desperately want to get there, but we have to lay the infrastructure. And so the same way that we didn't have a lot of Black doctors, Mm -hmm. well, guess what? We don't have a lot of Black financial planners yet. So it's our job to really see this ground, which I think is fertile ground, Mm -hmm. so that next group of people who have the skill sets necessary to be high quality financial planners will choose this. You know, I don't fault the sales guys completely, right? When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're a hammer, that's it, right? Mm -hmm. And so you go with the skill set you have and the expectations that community has out there for you. A lot of times it's like, man, there's a financial person talking to me. This is big. So when they tell you that this one product can solve all of your financial needs and there's a white person (laughs) on the cover looking like their financial needs have been solved, you're like, guess what? This is it. We did it, right? And so... That's a whole nother. I got to say something about that. I had some marketing stuff. I paid for this marketing service that I had and they gave me some, you know, I sent out emails to my clients and I had my business coach. He got onto my email list. And so I sent the email and everybody in every email that I had ever sent was white. And like, she was white. And so she tells me, she says, Emlyn, she said, she sent me an email when the, you know, the monthly subscription thing comes out. (laughs) And she's like, Emlyn, this email looks mighty white. And I said, I didn't even think about that. So she reached out to the company and it, it was so funny to me that anytime there was a picture in financial literature that had a person of success, they were always white, never Latino. Maybe you got an Asian person on there, but never, never, never. Lord forbid you have a black person on there and Lord <laughs> forbid you have a Latino on there because our Latino brothers are right there neck and neck with this wealth gap disparity. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this and I'm like, I'll put it to you this way. I had been sending out these emails for over two years and had never noticed because that's just the way that it had always been. It's just, if you want to be successful, basically you want to model yourself after one of these white Mm -hmm. professionals. That's what the measure of success looked like. It wasn't a black person. It wasn't a Latino person. It wasn't a person of color, period. It had to be success. And the way that I equated success unconsciously was with white people. Like I said, I'm not sitting here bad mouth, you know, I've had guests from all over the place, but it was amazing to think. And you're black. See, this is what we have a lot of responsibility to talk to the companies out there. I do a lot of presenting on diversity and to financial planning companies that are out there. And I do it with a great deal, at least I think of humility, humor. And then I also try to recognize, man, that people aren't necessarily trying to be vicious in the way that they do things at all. Right. There's nothing malicious Mm -hmm. about the approach is people doing what they're comfortable with. Heck, even Black folks doing what they're comfortable with might send it out newsletters monthly with just white folks on it, and you never even thought about it, right? Didn't even think, didn't Didn't think twice. (laughs) Didn't think twice. Didn't even cross my mind. It was like, this is what it is. We're talking about taxes and send that out. 
And the funny part is it came from a white person saying, hey, Emlyn, this probably ain't in your messaging. If you got Gen X wealth and you're trying to help minority families, she said, I haven't seen one minority in any other stuff that you send out. I said, my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, that blew my mind. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted to talk about you got a podcast that you have that you've been working on and we hadn't really touched on that. So I know you got the Bredren podcast, right? Yes. And you have another one that's coming out too? Yeah. So, okay. So the Bredren podcast focuses a lot on how you maintain and extend professional success. Mm -hmm. Because of my experience with the corporate world, and, you know, I still do corporate consulting now, that just talking about things like having a circle of influence, talking about branding in certain ways, talking about being organized as a professional, talking about how you present yourself. All of these things matter in a corporate environment and they present themselves differently for black folks. And so that's a lot of what we talk about on the Brethren podcast is myself, a gentleman named AJ Woodson, who's an entrepreneur and corporate person. And then my buddy Destrian Wells, who works in the financial services industry with Macquarie, uh, mm-hmm. Delaware Funds by Macquarie. And mm-hmm. so we talk about our experiences and we talk about how to navigate the professional world and balance it with your personal world. And I think that's different for Black folks. The other thing I'm developing now is Dr. Loving on Money and You. And this is going to be a podcast just talking to folks similar to yours Mm -hmm. about, hey, this is a complex financial world out there. And I know it. So I'm going to try to talk to you in as simple terms as I possibly can about what things you need to do to get ahead, right? And keep it as simple as possible and talk to you about the things that I know that you're interested in, whether it's making sure you have enough money to send your kids to college, Or how do you flip houses in terms of having the financial reserves necessary so that things, you know, that you're looking out for all the things that you need to look out for. So that podcast is currently in production. We're putting together a list of episodes that we're going to have. And then eventually, you know, my goal is to have the Dr. Loving show, kind of like Dr. Oz or Dr. Phil, Mm -hmm. but like a regular talk show style show where we talk about the issues that families face. And I mean all of it, all the way from, you know, identity theft within the family to elder financial abuse to trying to start a company and get ahead, becoming a professional athlete and not going broke. All of the things that tend to affect all families. But, you know, I cook it up the way that I learn how to make it. And so, Mm -hmm. yes, it is going to come from a black perspective. But what I have learned is that the people who like you like you most when you're being you. It's a people over things deal. And so when we try to emulate what we think makes you successful, we don't come off as quite as authentic, right? But when Mm -hmm. you're just being you and you're doing what comes from inside you and you're trying to help folks, then people of all backgrounds can gravitate towards it and like it because we are, you know, in this world where there's so much content out there, what people are looking for is real connection. And what they will really connect with is that authentic person, that real you. So. And that's the one thing nobody else can replicate. Nobody can robo it out. It's you and what it is that you bring to the table, your personal experience and the way that you can connect to them. There are certain folks who are meant to be reached by you. If you do not do what you're supposed to do and go out there and reach them, nobody's going to be able to do it. And so if you have that mindset, then that's going to propel you when you start to feel comfortable and you don't feel like working or you don't feel like making those calls or you don't even feel like continuing it or reaching out to that next person, understanding there's somebody out there 
that needs to hear your voice in order to respond. That's what you need. At least that's what I need a lot mm-hmm. of times to just propel me and keep me going. I think you're so right about that. Many people had spoken to me about, oh, Emlyn, you need to do a podcast. Emlyn, you need to do something. People need to hear what you have to say. And I was like, I don't really have nothing that important to say. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of started to listen to them eventually. And I was like, well, I really do like talking about finance, talking about culture, talking about money and how to help you know minorities move forward. And so when we finally put this all together, and here we are now. And as you know, Dr. Loving, this is the Minority Money Podcast, where we're changing the complexion of wealth. We are changing that. That's going to change. And it's going to be conversations like this and people like yourself, other industry professionals that, you know, people that are getting into the industry that are all going to make this happen. It's going to be a collective effort. And we're going to need some people from all walks of life to help with this. We know that the popular culture of financial planning right now is predominantly non-minority. So that's going to be moving the needle. Once we have more minorities in this profession, then we can go back and start to reach those families that are going to really relate with us. Like I said, we're changing the complexion of wealth. And so these are some of the questions that I ask to all of my guests here. What motivates and inspires you to continue to grow and learn, Dr. Weather? You know what? It really is seeing people become successful. I'm on two dissertation of committees right now. And uh, one for uh, probably for two people that you ought to talk to, mm-hmm. Miranda Reader out of uh, Kansas State. And then for uh, my good friend, basically a brother to me, Preston Cherry out of Texas Tech, right? Getting ready to defend in the next month or so. I'm excited for him and nervous, too. But and so I think, man, these young people have asked me to be on the dissertation committees, but also that they are going to be part of that next wave of Black financial planning professors that are going to be able to raise up a multitude of Black financial planners, right? To be that beacon out there that says, hey, not only could I be a financial planner, but I could also be a financial planning professor one day, right? That shows you that there is so much available. And so to the extent that we can really pull the best out of other folks, right? That's what excites me and keeps me going. And then I can see the potential of what's going to happen with what they do and how they inspire some other people. And it just makes me really optimistic about what's going to happen going forward and makes me want to keep pushing too. That's right. I love it. Do you think education plays a big part in wealth building? I absolutely do. And I know it's like, oh, well, you can know and know and know, but not do. Yeah, but knowing is such an important part of it. Look, when I say they, I mean the powers that be did not make it illegal for Black folks to learn how to read just by happenstance. Mm -hmm. They understood that reading led to knowledge and knowledge of yourself and knowledge of your environment and in the edification of yourself as an individual. And you can't keep a knowledgeable person as a beast, right? And that's why education is so important because whether folks know it or not, there's a plan out there for you. Mm -hmm. And for so many young Black men, and I'm just out there in terms of their plan for you and mass incarceration is basically to keep you at the level of beast. And they recognize that if you ever enlighten your mind and get focused on getting ahead in terms of what you're thinking, then as you think, then you will start to move, right? And I'm not saying all white folks want to keep Black folks down. <laughs> I'm saying that this country was built on a system that kept Black folks as beasts and property. 
And that system persists with small tweaks to this day. And it's our job as people who recognize that to point it out, fight against it, break that system, make a new one so that our young men and women can really be free. And education is such an important part of that process because otherwise people think, oh, okay, well, it just is what it is. No, no, no. You educate yourself and you find out it is because of what was and what will be will be based on what we do going forward. I mean, so, yeah. I, I like it. It makes total sense. One of the things that I used to look at when I was taking my economics class or my teacher would always have us look at the CIA facts book. I just wanted to throw this in here real quick. We got one more question for you. But the CIA facts book, we would always look at the GDP of nations. We would always look at, you know, we would look at that for every different nation. And one of the things that they always put on there was the literacy rate for the nation. It's amazing how the nation that has the highest literacy, which is us, has this big gap between the haves and have nots. And if you don't think that that's systemic, if you look at some of the barriers to keep people out of the profession, one of the number one things that you have to have to be able to get into this profession is you have to have a degree. Mm -hmm. That's it. To be able to get your CFP, you have to have your undergrad. If you don't have your undergrad, you can't get your CFP. If you can't get that, then you're really not doing financial planning. You're just doing, you know, financial selling. Education is so critical in wealth building. And, you know, we know that as you attain these degrees, you do make more money. Now, formalized education is the only way to make money. However, once you do have that formalized education, they cannot take that away from you. And that can only give you the ability to be in other places. So one last question for you, Dr. Loving, what piece of advice could you offer to our listeners as a parting gift? This is one, you know, I hesitate to just like ever make a, you know, to give folks, oh, well, this particular product or this particular tool always works. But there's one thing that one of my dad's clients said to him a long time ago that always just keeps my wheels turning. And she said, oh, well, Larry, I invest in stock because they can't separate my stock from their stock. <laughs> and the thing that you got to recognize, whether it's Black home ownership or people patronizing Black companies or any of the things that define our experience in terms of income disparity as Black folks, the one thing that they can't do is change the value of your stock ownership versus their stock ownership. All the rest of that can be manipulated. But that is why I'm such a proponent of Black folks owning stock. And we can have you, man, I'll come back as many times as you want to. We can <laughs> take this in any direction that you want to take it in. But I want to leave that little nugget with folks so they can go ahead let that marinate in your spirit, as they say, hey, yeah. and think about that and take it home. Do what you want to with it. Like some neck bone juice, right? You got to put That's that right. in the greens, some ham hocks, <laughs> put that in the greens, right. let it marinate for a little Right. While. Get that good pot liquor going. There you go. Well, Dr. Loving, I appreciate your time. If the listeners want to get more of Dr. Loving and what you're doing, I know you mentioned your podcast. We got the Brethren podcast. You also have Dr. Loving on money. Yeah. And then ajamuloving.com is also a place that you can reach me. And then through the University of North Texas at Dallas website, you can always reach me if you have questions about becoming a student in our financial planning program that's actually in the process of being built right now. So within our finance degree, we're actually going to have a soon to be at some point certified financial planning program for young students who want to be financial planners one day. 
That is awesome. Now, do you have any social media handles where we can get those out? I just want to make sure it's all right before they get at you. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Twitter at Ajamu Loving, that's A-J-A-M-U-L-O-V-I-N-G. I just spell it all normal because I'm not a good rapper. But <laughs> so, so if you put, it turns out, if you put Ajamu Loving into any search engine, all of the stuff that is, has anything to do with me will pop up very early in your search because I'm the only Ajamu Loving out there. And you can find all that information about me. All right. Well, like I said, appreciate having you on. Thank you for the work you're doing. You know, this is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, and we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please, reach out to an attorney or CPA Or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here. And until next time, 